I'd ask you to grab your Bibles this morning as we look to John chapter 9. A couple months ago, I was uh, catering an event up in DeKalb, and the name of the event was entitled Ski for Sight. It's an event that is put on by uh, the Lions Club of Illinois, who is known for helping out those that suffer from uh, blindness or other uh, various uh, eyesight conditions. And uh, the Ski for Sight is a weekend event where they bring in ski, uh, skiers, blind skiers from all over the Midwest, and they do a cross-country skiing course out at Shabana State Park in Shabana. And on that Saturday night, uh, they come in after a, a day of skiing, and what they do is they come to a hotel in DeKalb, and we feed them a meal. And we come in, and there's a banquet area, and they have a meal, then they have some dancing and some other things uh, going on of just fun and fellowship that is taking place. Well, of course, the lions are involved because each of the lions is paired up with one of the blind skiers. Of course, being blind, you can't ski on your own. You need someone to guide you. And each of the Lions Club members goes and guides one of the skiers. And their job that whole day is to be their guide. Well, I was as I was setting up the buffet line on that Saturday night, I watched this kind of obnoxious guy, reminded me a lot of a preacher I know, always dialoguing and talking with everybody else and not focused in on what he needs to be doing. And I knew he was a guide because there was a blind man that was with him. And I noticed that both of them got up and it looked like they were probably heading to the bathroom, out to the hallway, and, and there was a doorway. And I, could no, I was noticing and, and, and watching him and he's dialoguing as he's holding the man's arm. He's dialoguing with different individuals and people really not focused in on what he's supposed to be doing. Well, as he comes to the doorway, and I hope you uh, hold with me to the end of the story so I don't get in any trouble. As he's walking to the doorway, not focused in on what he's doing, he takes the doorway too tightly, and he runs the blind man into the wall. And you hear, bam! And this blind man falls to the ground, and everybody goes running. This guy's already in tears. He can't believe what he's done. He is so embarrassed. And everything changes because the blind man who's on the ground, as everyone's running to see that he's okay, yells out at the top of his voice, I knew I was blind, but I guess you are too. And I'll tell you what, I know the Lions members were really worried about what this was going to do for their partnership with the blind, but it became the, uh, the joke of the night. As the MC got up, a blind man himself, he said, this is a classic case of the blind leading the blind. You know, there's great humor in that story. But there's also great truth to that story as well. We live in a world where the blind lead the blind. And in John chapter 9, we are going to see that happen. For the last six weeks, we have been focusing our attention out of the Gospel of John on the seven miracles, the signs of demonst or the demonstrations of power that John calls signs. One of the commentaries called these miracles signs of significance because many times we get focused in on the mechanics and what's happening within the miracle that we forget to look at the lesson and the truths that are behind that miracle. It seems that there is a wealth of truth behind this miracle of a man who needed Jesus' help, who was born blind. But we also see that it isn't just for that man but it's for you and I as well. Because today we learn that Jesus is the answer to our darkness. To our darkness. But how does that answer become evident 
to you and to me. It comes in three key actions that we must be a part of. First of all, the first thing we must do is that this answer involves recognizing the misery, recognizing the misery of sightless men. Now we know from the context that Jesus and the chief priests are in a place, a point of confrontation within Jesus' earthly ministry. We know that they are becoming more and more agitated with this man, Jesus Christ. Now, in fact, if you look at the end of John chapter 8, you're going to see that there's a dialogue going on. In fact, an argument going on over Jesus' words about being before Father Abraham. And these were words of blasphemy. This would say that Jesus was before Abraham, and he says, before Abraham, I am, at the end of John chapter 8. In fact, look at the last verse of John 8, and that tells you how far the confrontation had gotten. It says that the people wanted to stone Jesus while he was in the temple area, but he slips away. They wanted Jesus dead. But look at what it says in verse 1. It says that he saw a man. My thought went to what would Jesus be seeing when he looked at that man? What are the things that he observed? I believe what Jesus saw in this man is the same thing that he sees in you and me as sinners. But it says that whenever Jesus seemed to look upon an individual, an emotion would carry him to that individual. And that was that he was gripped with compassion, mercy, and grace. So he looks at this man, and what is his reaction? He reaches out and he begins to minister to this man. But why? Because when Jesus looks at people, he doesn't see our paychecks, he doesn't see where we work, he doesn't see the nice clothes that we wear, or the nice car that we drive, or the great houses that we live in. But when Jesus sees us, he says, We are sheep without a shepherd, we are harassed and helpless. And Paul tells us that as a result of all the sin that we have in our lives, we are people that are miserable. And that's what I believe Jesus sees in this man. But why would this man be so miserable? Well, this misery, first of all, involves his blindness. Write that in your outlines. His blindness. It involves being blind. In my own thinking and estimation, and please don't take this the wrong way, for me, it would be one of the most difficult of physical handicaps to be blind. I am one who loves to watch things, to look at things, and to have never seen a sunset or the face of your children or the face of the person that you love. To ever be able to watch nature in all its glory would be a terrible thing. And yet we are given an account of a man who all his life lived in a place of utter darkness. But may I tell you and contend with you that there is a blindness far worse than not being able to see with your physical eyes. It's far worse to be in a place of spiritual darkness. And that is a place where every man, woman, and child is because of sin. Because of sin in our lives, we are unable to see God in all His glory and all His power and majesty. And we have a foe, an enemy, who tries to continue to keep us blinded. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, this is what it says, The God of this age, meaning the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Quite simply, if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, Paul's words to you are that you are 
blind. And you're not in a place that nobody else has been in. Before I came to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without the grace and mercy in my life that has been shed, I too would be with you completely blind. So what does Jesus do about it? Look what happens. The disciples respond first. They ask in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. John tells us that this misery of this man began at birth. Write that down. Began at birth. The Scriptures seem to indicate that this man was not only born handicapped, but as a result of his handicap, he was also one who lived in poverty. That's what sin does to us as well. Not only does it handicap us, cause us to be spiritually dead, but it also leads us to a place of poverty, spiritual poverty. This man would have been better off, in many people's opinions in that day, to have never been born. And yet he tells the disciples that this handicap was allowed by God so that God would receive glory. You know, that's a great truth for us as Christians this morning. I don't know where you're suffering. I don't know what ailments that you have or the struggles that you seem to be dealing with on a daily basis. But understand, as I told you last week, God allows those things. I don't understand why. And I'm not even going to try to preach a message that says I understand why. That's within the sovereign mystery of God. But God says that this handicap, for how many ever years it was, was as a result of God wanting to receive glory. Now during that time you'd say, well, why would the disciples ask that question? There's many writings in the first century time that said that there were two camps of rabbis during Jesus' time that spoke about this issue of prenatal sin. And what they said is issues of uh, mental illness or physical handicaps came as a result of some sort of prenatal sin that the child did, unborn child did within the womb. But then there was another group of rabbis, and this is all very well documented, that say that there was the thought that it wasn't the child's fault, but it was the parent's fault. That sometime during the pregnancy, that the father or mother sinned in some way that caused this terrible ailment or disease. And we know that it's completely false. Now, while we would hold to the original sin of every man, woman, and child, that every man, woman, and child born into this world is born into sin, we would think it to be preposterous to think that we could blame any kind of ailment like that on the issue of sin. Now, you'll say, well, doesn't all ailments and all issues come from sin? Yes. But to judge a specific ailment or, sin, uh, ailment or disease on a specific sin is only able to be seen in the mind of God. How does Jesus answer this? How does He answer it? Well, before He answers it, I think as it showed, I think He let the guys kind of resonate with it for a little moment. And as I thought about that, I want to sidebar, if you will, for just a second outside of our outline. The disciples come and they see this man. He's probably sitting there as it showed on the video. Maybe he had a, a tin cup with him like we see for those that are begging on the streets of Chicago. Maybe crying out, hey, can you spare some change? Can you help me out? Can you guide me from this place or the next? And the disciples come and they're with their rabbi. And what do they say? They say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Let me tell you something. There's a great truth there. Be careful that your theology 
doesn't get ahead of God's great commandment and great commission. I'm all about theology. I'm one of the, the, the biggest fans of getting together and talking about stuff that a lot of people have no desire to talk about and nuancing the deep things of God. But these guys took an object lesson and an illustration for their theological discussion and they took it from a real man who was in a real need. You know, so we get so busy in dealing with our own faith and our own teaching and our own learning that we forget to begin to minister to those who are in need. That theology that they were asking about should have led them to a place to meet the needs of this man. Warren Wearsby shared it this way. It is much easier to discuss an abstract subject like sin than it is to minister to the concrete need in the life of a person. It's easy for us to talk about it and to talk about suffering, but is it is easy to go and to wrap our arms around that person that is suffering to meet them. This guy's in a miserable place. And John tells us that he's described by his neighbors as one who begs. And I tell you, that is true of our blindness as well because it causes us to beg. This man was unable to find unemployment. And as a result, he was reduced to begging for food and money that he received. What a pitiful state for this man to be in. This is no rich man. It would even appear that his parents are one of two circumstances. One, they don't care about him and aren't ministering to him and dealing with the needs that he has or maybe to be nicer to them because we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. At best, they weren't able to meet the needs because they were in poverty themselves. This man has no one to turn to. So he finds himself begging. It's a picture of absolute poverty. And spiritually speaking, for us, we can apply this to our own lives because apart from Jesus Christ, you and I are completely and hopelessly spiritually bankrupt. We've got nothing. We've got nothing that will satisfy our deepest longings spiritually. But you know, we try to do it within this world. We find ourselves going after things like sex and alcohol and drugs, things like materialism and greed. We go after pursuing the dreams that we have here on earth or the dreams of our children. And those things are all forms of begging. They're all like us sitting there with our little cups and shaking our hands saying, just a little more. Give me a little more. I need to get through the day. But just like the coins in that tin cup, after they've been used, you find yourself begging again. We're spiritually bankrupt, begging for more. But you know what? Jesus doesn't leave the guys in that spiritual theological discussion. But what does he do? He comes, he kneels down by this man, and he's about to change everything this man knows. What an incredible truth! That even though people write you off and they say you're worthless, you know, I will tell you, as a teenager, I had a lot of issues, man. I just never could seem to put it together. And, and I will tell you, there were people, even people within the church, that would say, you know what, They'd tell my parents, and some even had the guts to tell me as a young child, you're so messed up at times, you don't think right. What are you going to be able to do for God? You know, you may have been written off like that. But just like this beggar whose family and friends kind of said, well, that's how he's going to be the rest of his life. God has a different plan. 
And God has a different plan for you because Jesus Christ is one who specializes in salvaging old and wasted lives. And His purpose to do that is to bring glory to His Father in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Jesus doesn't want to just help out this guy. He wants to make him a new creation. Well, that leads us to a second step this morning. Once we recognize that we are just like that blind man when we are in our sin, spiritually bankrupt and full of misery, then it brings us to a second thing, and that is remembering the ministry of a sovereign master. Remembering the ministry of a sovereign master. Here's this blind man who probably hears, if you would picture with me for a moment, He's sitting here, and the disciples walk by and they see him. And I wonder, and I'm speculating, I'm wondering if he heard them asking the question. He's sitting there shaking that little cup, helping, hoping for money, hoping for some guidance, some help. And he hears this group of guys ask their rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And I wonder if during that time, John does not record, whether that blind man was sitting there saying, does it really matter now does it how i'm in this predicament i've been in it for so long who really cares at this point won't you just help me won't you just meet my need and that is exactly what jesus does jesus begins to minister to this man and yet i think it's amazing that we see that in jesus's answer that god would receive glory out of this man that we see the sovereignty of god all throughout it Because Jesus, before the foundations of the earth, between Him and the Father and the Spirit, came together and appointed a time for this man's suffering. And they said, this man is going to suffer for this amount of time. But Jesus will go and He will heal him at that time and that place. I don't know about you, but I want you to understand this if you don't already. Wherever you're suffering, wherever you're struggling, whatever it is, Understand that God has an appointed time for you to suffer. It's appointed. It's set. And you know what? It will bring glory to God. Because it will happen according to His plan and His will. This is the sovereignty of God at work in the details of everyday activity in life. But did Jesus just come to heal this man? No. In fact, Luke tells us that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's how God receives glory. By bringing sight to the blind and by bringing life to the spiritually dead. And that's how God the Father receives glory. But look at what Jesus says. Some cryptic words in verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the work of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. What is Jesus saying? Well, it's a reminder not only to the disciples, but to us as well. We have a limited time for ministry. We have a limited time for outreach. We have a limited time to do what God has appointed for us to do here on earth. He's telling His disciples that, hey, so you know, I'm not going to be here for that much longer. I only got a certain amount of time that I'm going to be here, so I'm going to work. Instead of sitting back and talking theology, I'm going to do the work of the one who sent me. We need to be so very careful in our, in our church that we don't find ourselves just hunkering in here talking about them, but that we go to them because we will have 
plenty of time to talk amongst ourselves. Our job is, yes, to learn and to grow and to be holy, just as Christ is holy. But God calls us to go and make disciples, to go and reach the lost, to take care of the orphans and widows in their distress, as James tells us in his epistle. So what happens? Jesus lives his life on purpose. Look at what he says in verse 6 and 7. Having said this, he spit on the ground. So, you know, uh, next time your child spits, be careful you don't smack him around and say that's uncalled for. Jesus did it. Told my mother that one time. She wasn't very happy. She was about to spit on me, I think. He takes some of the uh, spit and saliva into the mud, and it says he puts it on his ma- the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went, being washed, he came home seeing. Does Jesus ask this man if he wants to see? No, he did that in John 5. He doesn't do it here. He just spits on the ground, takes some mud, and puts it on the man's eyes. Why would he do that? Why would he perform a miracle in such an absurd and such a bizarre way? There's a couple things I want you to write down if you can. Jesus never wanted to follow a certain protocol. Just write that somewhere. In his miracles, he never wanted to do it the same way. Why? Because he didn't want it to probably look like a magic show. He didn't want it to be, well, this is how Jesus does it. And that's the only way he can do it. Jesus was not a master of a certain way of doing miracles. He could do miracles any way he wanted. Jesus had healed some people that were blind in the past. But he had done their healing quite differently. And it seems from Scripture that this is the only reference to Jesus healing someone with an ailment that they had had since birth. Remember the taking care of the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He had not been paralyzed uh, from birth. This man had. He had been blind. Next, we see Jesus uses a foreign substance to display his miraculous powers. I like the way one of the um, commentators put it. He said that he used the mud to irritate the eyes and how we as sinners, God places irritations within our soul to bring us to the miraculous saving of our souls. He uses a foreign substance, dirt, mud in his eyes. Next, he calls the man to obey his command to go and be washed. And fourthly, it's not the way that uh, our uh, video interpreted it, but many commentators said that it probably took someone to guide him to the pool to be able to wash. And that is a parallel to us in our place of salvation. I see a couple things. First of all, we are spiritually blind from birth because of sin. Jesus takes the initiative in healing us from our blindness. Jesus does the work of creation. He created the sight for this man. He didn't do a reformation. He didn't reform his sight or repair his sight, just as Jesus doesn't repair us. He takes out the old and he puts in the new. He creates something new. And fourthly, Jesus calls us to be obedient to what he commands. He doesn't just say, I'll heal you, you can do whatever you want. He says, I'll heal you, but I call you to deny yourself and take up the cross. And finally, we profit greatly from those who lead us to a place of healing, who lead us to be able to obey Jesus Christ. But how does this ministry get fleshed out, this ministry of a sovereign master? Well, first of all, we see that it begins when we are exposed to the light. 
I'm sorry, exposed to Jesus. Exposed to Jesus. Now let's face it, without Jesus coming to this man, this man, our friend, would never ever be able to see. And that's true of us as well. The only way you and I can come to Christ is when the light of Jesus Christ is placed within our hearts. The only way is by the Holy Spirit moving in our lives to convict us and God drawing us to Himself. Can we ever be able to have our eyes opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ? But we see in this text there's a process. I want you to look at your text for a moment. There's a process. This man doesn't just say, okay, now I can see, now I believe. Because seeing isn't always believing. This man, just because he had a miracle performed for him, doesn't mean that he's saved. We find that he is still unable to know who saved him. Look at what it says in verse 11. Look at his thoughts, first thoughts on Jesus. He's healed, and the people come and they ask, well, how did you get healed? Who healed you? He says, the man they call Jesus. He says he's a man. He calls him a man. Now that would mean that he was no different than the blind man. He was no different. He was just another individual. But it moves on in progression. Look at what it says in verse 17. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. So he elevates it. He says, all right, the guy that did this to me, he, he was a man, but now I say he's a man who speaks for God. But look at what he says. Verse uh, 33, Pharisees are speaking to him again. And this is what he says. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he goes from saying he's a man to saying he's a man who speaks for God. Now he says he's a man from God. Let me stop there for a moment. Those are three deficient views of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. There are people, Jews, modern-day Jews, and many others, even Americans in our world today, that say Jesus was a man. He lived, we know that, history tells us that. In 30, in, uh, right around 0 to 30 AD, there was a man named Jesus. He taught. And many people will say, your neighbors will tell you, he was a good man, a good teacher. And then there will be others that will say, well, he wasn't just a man. But we have the um, religion of Islam that says he's not just a man, but he's a prophet. He's one who spoke on behalf of God. And he wasn't the only prophet, but he was one of many. Just a quick thing. We uh, were coming to our elder meeting on Monday night. And one of the engineers who's been working on our building is a Muslim cleric who speaks every Friday night to his uh, people that assemble at his mosque. And he got into a dialogue with us as an elder board about who Jesus was and why we do the things we do as Christians. And I applaud Scott Cap, our equipping pastor, because at one point you would hear the uh, guy's name was Faisal. He would come and he would say time and time again, uh, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, peace be upon him, the prophet. And Scott asked at one point, you call him a prophet, that is good, but will you bow to Jesus? Will you bow to Jesus? Let me tell you something. These three things, if you hold Jesus to be a man, if you hold Jesus to be a prophet, you're wrong. But even worse, it goes one step farther. He says, well, I call him a man man of God or a man from God. The Mormon church from Salt Lake City says that Jesus wasn't just a man, nor was he just a prophet. 
But he was a man that attained Godship. And he has this special relationship with God the Father. I will tell you something. All three are deficient. And if you hold to one of those three positions, I will say it and it's not politically correct. All those decisions about Jesus Christ lead to one place and it's called hell. Unless you bow the knee to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have a deficient view of Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that this man comes to that saving knowledge. Look at verse um, uh, 38. It says, Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. That is the only response that brings salvation. Lord, I believe. Curios, I believe. It is a, it's a sense that he is so much greater, so much more awesome, that he is the only one whom we can believe in. Lord, I believe, and it says he worshiped. We don't worship a man. We don't worship a prophet. We worship God and the Son he sent, Jesus Christ. Next, we see this ministry compels us to evangelize the lost. It compels us to evangelize the lost. Look at verse, uh, before we get to verse 25, it says in verse 9, he goes home. And we don't know where his home's at. But it says that his neighbors dialogue about who this man is. And I'm sure he dialogued with his parents about it. And how important it is to us for us to remember when our lives are changed by Jesus Christ, not to just go and talk about it here at church, but to make sure we share it with our neighbors, family, and friends. This man goes and he's able to see and he goes back to where he's from and begins to show himself. But it doesn't end there. He shares the truth with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees begin to question him and question his trust in being healed. And he stands before the big religious guns of that day. He has no seminary training. He hasn't been to any seminars. He hasn't had any opportunity even to dialogue anymore with Jesus. And he stands before him. And does he shrink back? No. In fact, this is what he says in verse 25. Whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know. I don't know about that stuff, but he says, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. At this point, this man is still seeking, and he's still able to utter the words that he had been changed by Jesus Christ. I'll tell you something. The Pharisees didn't know what to do with that answer. They wanted to get into a theological uh, dialogue about who this was and what he was doing and what he was all about. And he says, I can't tell you the answers to that, but I can tell you the answers that Jesus Christ took care of my problem of blindness. Recently, I was asked by a family member uh, who's, who's seeking to understand uh, the faith and things, and he recently asked me on the telephone, he said, Tim, I heard that they found this box that had Jesus' name on it, and it's full of bones. And he says, doesn't that strike fear in you that, that your faith will be nullified? Doesn't that bring question in your mind that maybe we misinterpreted Jesus and, and who he was and who he said that he was? And I said, no. And he says, well, what argument do you give? And I said, I haven't done enough study on even this box of bones that has Jesus' name on it. But I said, I can assure you of this. I have seen Jesus Christ come and change my life. And no box of bones is going to change that. You know, we as people get so worried about making sure everybody knows the four spiritual laws and we make sure that we recite John 3.16 and all those things, please understand me, are very important. 
But you know what people need to hear? What people can't argue with? And there's a place for apologetics and, and science. And I thank God for men and women who are studying and nuancing those things. But we need a people and a church. Not to just get into debates, but to go tell their friends and lost loved ones, I was blind, but now I see. Is that what you're sharing with your friends and your workers? You're saying, you know, I'm, I'm different. I wonder if these people were saying, well, wait a minute. He's different. Wouldn't it be great if our people here at Village Bible would go to work and they would see how Johnny used to be and how Johnny is now? That they would see Sally and they would see how she used to be and how she is now. And they'd say, you know, I'm not sure about her whole thing about Jesus, but, but they're not cursing like they used to and they're not uh, lying and cheating like they used to and they're not watching the things they used to and they're not uh, doing dishonest things like they used to. I'm not sure about Jesus, but obviously something has happened that has changed their life. It'd be neat that if we as people would have that effect on our friends and our neighbors. Look at what it says next. Uh, this ministry may exclude us from friends and family. may exclude us from friends and family. After numerous discussions between the man and his neighbors in verses 8 and 12, and then the Pharisees who questioned him in verses 16 through 18, then they questioned the man's parents in verses 19 through 23, then they bring him back again and they question him again in verses 24 through 34. The man holds to a story and he says, Jesus healed me. Now you would think that they would be excited about this man being healed. But look at what it says. His parents leave him hanging. Look at verse 20 through 23. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how can he see now? Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. It said his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. His parents sold them out. Here his son, their son is healed and, and they sell him out. We see that next he's excommunicated from the temple. Look at verse 34. To this they replied, You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Here's a man healed from an ailment that haunted his life. And what is the response? He loses the connection he had with the friends and family that he loved. To be kicked out of the synagogue, out of the temple, would mean to be driven from all aspects of social and family and even national life. And I will tell you, that is true of us as well. Because there are some that have come to know Christ as their Savior. And you would think that their lives, because they've been changed for the better, that their friends and family would come and put their arms around them and say, this is outstanding, this is wonderful, let us rejoice. But what you got when you told people that you found Christ, they said, get that stuff out of here. Who do you think you are? I can't believe that you fell for that garbage. Some of you in this place have been kicked out of your homes. You've been ostracized by your family and friends as a result. And that is true of this man. Jesus heals him and he gets kicked out. Just like this blind man, we are become a mystery to those that knew us before we came to know Christ. Secondly, we display a loyalty to Jesus when we're persecuted that we are able to boldly and uh, wonderfully testify about Jesus. Just like this man, as Christians, we pass from little knowledge to greater knowledge, which leads in greater adoration and worship. And I think the thing that's neat is you never hear this man's name. You never hear anything more than he's a man, he's blind, and he begs. Why is that? Because Christianity is not about Christians. It's about Christ. 
It's about not the one who's been changed, but the change, the one who changes men and women for his namesake. And that's what we see in this text. Finally, we see that the answer to our darkness is revealed by responding to this message about a supernatural miracle. There are three attributes of Christ we see in this text. First of all, we see that Jesus is the shining light. In verse 5, He says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He doesn't say, I am a light of the world or one of the lights of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. In a world full of darkness, Jesus Christ is the only light. And He came into this world and He still to this day is in this world through the working of His Holy Spirit, shining a light so that people can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Just as He healed this blind man, He has come to heal those who will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Next we see He's a seeking light. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had thrown this man out, this blind man, and it says, and when He found him, one of the commentaries says that he searched out for this man. After this man had been cast out, Jesus went looking for him. What an incredible application for us today because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And maybe you're here today and, and you're not sure why you're here, but you felt this uh, pull to come to a church and to maybe your circumstances have brought you here. But maybe it's you haven't been here for a while because religion wouldn't have you. Or maybe a church didn't want you to be around. Or maybe you're the kind of person that people don't want anything to do with you. No matter who you are or the conditions that you have, I can assure you of this. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save you who are lost. And it's time for you to get tired of that blindness and allow Jesus to heal your eyes so that you can see Him once and for all. Finally, we see He's a saving light. Verses 35-38. through 38. Jesus heard that they had thrown Him out. And when they found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? He still doesn't even know who has healed them. The man asked, Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. And in fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. When this man bowed and worshipped, I can assure you of something. He forgot about his trials and tribulations of being blind. I'm sure he forgot about the pain of being removed from the synagogue. Because when he called on the name of Jesus, he was eternally saved and he entered into a family in which he would never be thrown out. I don't know about you today, and as you uh, close your Bibles, and I want you to close your eyes for a moment. If this resonates in your heart this morning, the question I have for you is, do you know Jesus? Have you met Jesus? Have your eyes been opened by Jesus? And if they haven't, if you have any doubt in your mind of where you're at with Jesus, come and talk to me after the service. Go and talk to the people that are in the Welcome Center. We want to tell you more about Jesus. But those that have come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, let us remember a couple things. Don't be afraid to share your story with others. No matter the opposition, no matter the cost, because Jesus will give us the grace and the strength that we need in the face of opposition. And when people hurl insults at you, when they call you names, never forget that at one point you were blind as well. And pray that Jesus would open their eyes. I'm going to close our service this morning as we've gone long with a prayer. So let's bow and pray together. Father God, we thank You for bringing sight 
to our eyes. Father, that I was blind and now I see. And it has nothing to do with me, Father, but it has all to do with Your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray as we are people that have been healed from our blindness that we would go and share the good news of our healing to others. And, Lord, I pray for that individual that may be here this morning who's living in spiritual darkness. Father, I pray that they would allow you to open their eyes. And, Father, that they would see the glory of the one and only Son of God who saves us from our sin. And, Father, that in obedience they would be healed. So, Father, we love you and we praise you and give this time to you. To you be the glory. To you be the honor. To you be the praise. As we leave this place, let us be people who resonate in our hearts that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all God's people said, Amen. Go and fellowship with one another this morning.